Well, hello there. Welcome to What's the Story? My name is Matt Edmondson, and this is a podcast where we hear stories about faith and courage from everyday people. And today we are talking to the beautiful Jen, who is sat beside me if you're watching this on video, uh, and Jen Oliver. We're going to be talking about what it's like when your seemingly perfect life spirals out of control and you're faced with things like miscarriage and cancer scares and grief and all that kind of stuff. Now, this episode is brought to you by Crowd Church, uh, which is an online church. Yes, it is. Uh, now, Jen, you know as well as I do, right? Not everybody uh, wants to go to church, not everybody likes going to a church building, and this is where online church works super super well so if you've never been to church before or if you're looking for a new church do check it out crowd.church it is a safe space to explore the christian faith and the thing that i love about crowd is it's online first meaning we talk with you not just at you Uh, you get to ask all your questions you get to throw all your comments and stories uh, into the live stream so uh, you get to grow with us and develop the whole thing with us it's awesome so definitely worth checking out head over to www.crowd.church or if you've got any questions you can email me directly at matt at crowd church now before i get into today's conversation with jen just want to mention a few episodes, a few links that are worth checking out. Uh, given the topics that we're going to be talking about today, it's probably worth checking out. Uh, what does the Bible say about cancer? Uh, a talk by Annie Udin, which is just an unbelievable talk. Annie also was on What's the Story last week, the last episode. Uh, so check out her full story as well. And also miscarriage and grief are topics covered by Anna Kettle in her uh, talk. What does the Bible say about grief? And also she's been on What's the Story talking uh, about her journey. So do check those out as well. Uh, But yeah, that's the intro, Jen. Uh, Welcome to Crowd Stories. Uh, It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. (laughs) Now, it's probably worth saying right at the start here that we've both got, uh, well, we've both got head colds, haven't we? So we might be a little bit nasal and a little bit coffee and spluttery. But the good news is you can't catch it uh, down the... (laughs) down the video camera so we should be okay now let's jump into this before i do let me just read your bio jen is from the great city of liverpool where i now live you have been married to dave for 20 years which is dave is your childhood sweetheart right uh, which he is, is just yeah. uh, fantastic you've got three kids and the thing which always surprises me about you jen is given the fact you live in liverpool you're a big everton football club fan rather than Liverpool football club and for those of you outside of this great city and those of you not familiar with uh, football or soccer uh, as everyone else likes to call it there are two clubs in Liverpool what's that old joke there's two football clubs in Liverpool Liverpool and Liverpool reserves uh, which (laughs) (laughs) and there's also another one called Everton and so there's a bit of a rivalry between Liverpool uh, football club in Everton and it has to be said actually Jen that I'm uh, obviously uh, a Liverpool football club fan and um, Liverpool football club is a reason why I ended up in this city it's a reason why I chose university uh, but I, I do love this sort of rivalry and we'll get into that maybe anyway the other thing which people may find surprising uh, about you Jen is you're a bit of an F1 petrol head right yeah Except you're a Mercedes fan, aren't you? I'm a Red Bull fan. <laughs> it's like Everton, Liverpool. I'm Mercedes, you're uh, Red Bull. We're just yeah, not I'm... on the same page, are we? <laughs> 
no, no. In fact, the only commonality we have is the fact that our kids go to the same school. Mine have, yeah, mine still go. We've got one, we share one class, don't we? Uh, we've yeah. got kids in the same class. Uh, and we also work together. We have that privilege uh, every day, except Mondays, uh, of working together. It took me about four years to figure out that Jim doesn't work on a Monday. Um, no, I'm thinking of changing my day. It's just to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just to confuse me, just to sort of change it all around. Yeah. Um, and the other thing uh, which is worth knowing is you you are an avid crocheter, right? And you have your little side hustle called Woolly Treasures, which people can find on Instagram. Yeah. And you've made some amazing stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely love crocheting. I always have a ball of wool and a hook in the car in the bag so just because you just never know <laughs> you just you just never know you just never know when it's going to strike right so <laughs> now zoe my daughter she's beginning to crochet she's made some really awesome stuff actually so uh, i'm always amazed at people that can do that kind of thing but it's just not me at all so how did you get into it was this like a, a childhood thing that you carried on no it was i think my youngest phoebe was about one one yeah about one years old and I think I just needed to be productive for me other than you know like herding kids all day and <laughs> all that kind of stuff so I just let I don't know what sparked it I just learned one day off YouTube and that was it and it was That's really a... nice to be able to sit down of an evening and do something totally different okay um, but have a result at the end of it which was really good so well, that's, yeah, that's all. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about YouTube, right, is you can you can practically learn anything these days. Yeah. Uh, and you just you just got to have a go, haven't you? And so uh, you've got three kids. Phoebe's the youngest. The names of the other two? Jared is my middle one. He's in the same class as Zoe, Zoe. so he's in year 11. And I've got Adam, who is in sixth form. Who's looking at universities. Uh, yes. You've got that yes. face, haven't you? So... Um, yeah, we've now got two at university, so it's just a fascinating phase. You just you've got to prepare yourself for it, right? Uh, you know, when your when your kids start going off to uni. Yeah. Uh, my my two boys, we were talking about this yesterday, weren't we? My two boys chose universities at the complete opposite ends of the country, <laughs> uh, so they're like five or six hours away from us, both of them, and they're like 10, 12 hours away from each other. I'm not quite sure what that says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're definitely far away uh, while still being in the UK. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's a really interesting phase of life, yeah. this whole uni thing, isn't it? So um, now you are born and bred uh, in Liverpool. You're a born and bred Li Liverpool uh, dude or dudette. Uh, I don't know what the right expression here is. Um, have you ever lived outside of Liverpool? No, never. Always lived in Liverpool. Thought about all... leaving a few times, but never ended up doing it never ended up doing it. so and have you always lived in the same area of liverpool pretty much yeah same postcode which is uh <laughs> which is quite funny <laughs> well so you've not actually you've not actually moved from like the sort of three square mile radius or whatever a postcode covers these days no i have traveled far but i haven't lived <laughs> <laughs> I haven't lived outside of liverpool yeah this sort of this little uh, area of liverpool so why um why everton football club is that a an inherited thing or was that a, is that just a rebellious thing uh well no so I have to confess, I was raised a Liverpool fan and my dad used to take me to the game when the cup was standing um, and sit me on the bar um, watching the games. So I grew up going to Liverpool and then 
I met Dave, <laughs> who is an avid blue from a family of oh. many, many blues. And actually, I realized that I wasn't prepared to fly the flag for Liverpool on my own. Having then had two boys. And so I enjoyed football. So I just joined in with Everton. And now, you know, that's it. I'm properly involved. Now you're living a life of permanent disappointment. (laughs) Character building, Matt. Character building. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, It's funny, the jokes that go around. That's quite interesting, though, that you started off as a red uh, and you changed because of your husband. Mm. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that what that means or what that says. I'm just pointing that out. Uh, and dear listeners, yeah, you can make your own judgment. Time, I loved football growing up and as a young teen. And then it kind of dropped off my radar um, when I was like late teens. Mm-hmm. So then I wasn't that bothered. You know, I was quite happy to watch Everton and support mm. Everton. But then, yeah, the People's Club just got to me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and totally understandable, really. Um, so you've lived in Liverpool all your life. Uh, mm-hmm. Your parents, uh, your mum and dad, both Scousers? Yep. Um, and so you come from a long line of Scousers. Your husband's Scouser? Yeah. Uh, so Scouser just means born and bred in Liverpool, by the way, uh, if you're outside of the city. Um, so you've got a steep history in this city, your family, your lineage uh, is in Liverpool. Um, And it's fair to say, actually, uh, knowing a little bit about you, that the church you grew up in, um, you are still a member of. So it's like you've not moved out of the postcode and you've not moved out of your church, right? It's just... I'm really sheltered. I'm not that sheltered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're not. Uh, No, it's just maybe the way I'm asking the questions that's leading it down that road. Um, But it's, 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 it, it interests me because I'm, I, I have a different story, right? And this is, um, this is what interests me is actually you have this heritage here um, and this foundation here, which not many people attest to these days. Uh, they, don't, they don't have that. And I find that quite fascinating. Um, and so as you grew up, um, did you grow up in a Christian house? I did, yeah. So mum and dad, both Christians. Yeah. So their families weren't Christians, but like many kids growing up, probably in the 50s, 60s, parents often sent their kids to church activities, didn't they? Even when Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily go to church, they might have believed in God, but they didn't go to church. So my Mm -hmm. mum and dad were sent to, you know, like Sunday schools in different churches. And then they joined youth groups, which is like the next the next thing and they met in the youth in the church that I go to so they got together probably about a similar age that Dave and I did um, and got married and stayed in that church my dad actually went away for university um came back they settled here so yeah well so your your parents met in the church you go to um they started courting in the church that you go to uh, they were members in there. They have a family. You grew up in that church. And now your kids also go to that church, right? Yeah. And that's, again, there's a heritage there that I don't see a lot of uh, mm. these days, if I'm honest with you. I, I, this is definitely not my story. Do you know what I mean? And so this is this is what fascinates me. And I, I, I quite like it, if I'm honest with you. Mm. Um, it's, it's it's quite amazing. So your your parents dated when they were young. They got married. Um 
so the the church that they went to where the kids activities the church what's the church you now go to what's it called i go to bethel church in west derby okay um and so you go to bethel church uh, was it always called bethel church yeah um yeah. and so your parents go to bethel church um and uh they is bethel church then like an evangelical style church is that why they sort of became christians there yeah yeah lots of kids work lots of you know stuff for youth quite evangelistic to the the area around it mm. yeah okay so you, you then grow up in a christian family um yep. uh, like many people uh, in church you grew up in a christian family but it, I, so and like everybody we've talked to on, on on what's the story so far in terms of the the growing up in a Christian family. Was there a point then where you had to make a decision for yourself, actually, no, this is for real. This is uh, this is for me. Yeah, yeah, there was. I think there's two significant times I can remember. So um, not only did I go to church, was brought up in a Christian home, I went to a Christian school as well, the same school that my kids are in and yours have gone to. Um, so actually, there was quite a... Um, you know, there was quite a connection between church, home, school, the things mm. I was taught. It was all quite natural to believe in God. It was, you know, I didn't really question that there wasn't a God. It's just I accepted what I was taught. It was just quite normal to me. But I like, you know, kids that go to church that are brought up in church. I went along to the kids activities at my church. And I remember um, there was I think it was Christmas time. I can't fully remember the details. I was about eight and I remember being in a kids meeting. We'd played games, you know, done all the normal kind of stuff you do um, in kids activities at church. And then we were listening to um, a story at the end. And I can't tell you what the person was talking about. I just remember feeling really uncomfortable because I felt like he was talking just to me. Oh, wow. um, and I didn't want to listen because I knew what he was saying, because obviously when you grow up in church, you know that Jesus died for you, that, you know, you mm. need to make a personal decision. Are you going to follow Jesus? But I didn't want to listen because I knew if I listened, I'd have to do something on the, the back of what I was hearing. I'd have to respond in some way. So I just tried not to listen. I was just thinking, oh, I can't wait for this to be over, which was really strange because I loved church things. And it wasn't that I disagreed with anything. I just felt really uncomfortable. I felt like a churning inside. Mm. Um, and then at the end, I was waiting for my dad to pick me up. And before I knew it, I'd walked up to one of the helpers and said, I'd like to become a Christian. Um, and so we prayed together. And um, that's when I gave my life to God. Um, and nothing dramatically changed mm. because... Obviously, I was, I was, you know, I was quite a good kid. It wasn't that I had a major life change. I was eight years old. But actually, for me, that was a pivotal moment where I was mm. like, yes, I've, I've become a Christian, you know, not because my mum and dad are, not because my brother is, but because, you know, mm. for me. Um, and then I carried on living, you know, growing up um, in, the, in the church, in my school. I had a great group of friends. Everything was quite straightforward. But then it came to the age of about 15, um, 16, and um, I had to decide, right, if I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do it because my mum and dad are Christians because this is what, you know, I mm. do. I'm going to do it because this is what I'm going to do. And if I'm going to do this, I've got to be all in, mm. you know. I've got to, you know, 
live for God for me, you know, yeah. myself. Um, so CFS doesn't have a sixth form, does it? So obviously I was leaving school to go to a sixth form. And, you know, for some kids growing up in a Christian home who've maybe been through a Christian school, that's a point when they can reinvent themselves if they want to, can't they? You know, but yeah. for me, that was a pivotal moment of thinking, right, I'm joining a sixth form with people who I don't know. They don't know anything about me. What do I want to be known for? You know, and that was, you know, I wanted to be, um, obviously I wanted to be liked. I wanted to have friends, but I wanted them to know that I was a Christian. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say about 15, 16 was the moment when I was like, right, this is it now. I'm starting to make decisions for me. So God needs to be in this. Um, it's interesting that you did that when you, um, it's interesting that you remember that event when you were eight years old, uh, where, yeah. you, where you're going to, I've got to make this decision for myself. It's quite an, in, it's quite a mature decision for an eight year old to make, if I'm honest with you, um, yeah. you know, quite young. Um, but then again, sort of eight years later, when you're sort of 15, 16, and you're going off to sixth form. So you're starting to sort of venture out of, um, the Christian uh, environment that you're in a little bit because it is a, I mean CFS is a wonderful school um, yeah I send my kids there uh, so I, I you know I'm, I'm a big fan of this sort of the, the Christian school um, and you've obviously you grew up there and I think when you grew up in that school it was very different to what it is now um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how did you in fact on that topic how did you find it then growing up in a Christian school what was what was it like for you I mean I really enjoyed it it was quirky. It was, I liked school. I had a really good group of friends. I wasn't, a, I mean, you know me, I'm not a rebellious person. <laughs> you know, I just kind of, I'm a rule keeper. Um, I enjoyed being known. Um, I did even, even at that age, being in school, I did appreciate the differences between CFS and other schools. I had lots mm -hmm. of friends in other schools and I just remember thinking, I'm so thankful I'm in the place I'm in. Mm. Um, and I think what struck me most was when I went to sixth form, I actually realized that CFS had really taught me and probably home and church as well, that my identity was not in my academic ability, that, you know, God loved me for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that is really important for, for young people to know that your, you know, your worth is not in what you achieve Mm. When society basically, school, the school system is all about what you can achieve, isn't it? Yeah, it is. um, And actually, there's so much more to life. And I think that really struck me when I went to sixth form. If, you know, the jump between GCSEs and A-levels is quite big. Mm. And I watched people around me crumble when they weren't getting the grades they'd got at GCSE. But I wasn't rocked. It didn't rock me. They're quite the same. I think I just had a different outlook to those around me, which was... Um, I remember that really helped mm. um, in sixth form. That's interesting. Uh, for those of you listening outside of the UK, GCSEs are exams you take when you're 16 uh, and A-levels are exams you take when you're 18. And it's mm. your A-levels that get you into university. I mean, it's a little bit more nuanced and complicated than this, but just so <laughs> um, uh, So your GCSEs get you to your A-levels, your A-levels get you to uni, and then uh, who knows what happens after that. So... Uh, you're, so you've grown up in this Christian environment. You, you, you've gone to Christian school. You're, which sixth form did you go to to do your A-levels? I went to Belvedere sixth form. Okay. And so the contrast then between um, a, what I would call a state school, a state-run school, um, and uh, CFS, certainly CFS at the time, I imagine was quite stark, right? Yeah. So what were yeah. some of the key things that you noticed, the, the sort of key differences? Um. 
I mean, the facilities <laughs> were were so different. You know, when I went into a science lab in Belvedere, there was like water baths. I'd never even seen a water bath before. Mm. You know, in you know, like at CFS, you got your tripod and your Bunsen out to heat water. Whereas in Belvedere, you had a water bath that you set to a temperature that you put your your test tube in. You know, there was little things like that were very different. There was so much available to people in terms of resources. Um, I mean, both were supportive environments. They were. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't say Belvedere just celebrated the academic, but obviously it was a very academic school. Mm. Whereas I guess from CFS, I'd been, you know, my abilities in lots of different areas were celebrated, you know, my gifts. Mm. I felt like I had worth as a person, um, mm. which I did in Belvedere, but it was very much, you know, that academic focus um, was different. Obviously, I think CFS was the same size as the whole sixth form in terms of the number of kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I did find it easy to make friends. I made some great friends. I was accepted for me. Mm. I think I was quite different to lots of the people they were used to. But you know, you, you need you know you need to be yourself, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and you you prove yourself to people in that way by being a good friend to people. Um, yeah, you do. And I think also people, my experience is that if you're um, secure or confident in who you are, not arrogant necessarily, but, you know, you've mm. got that assurance um, about who you are as a person, you then, you, then actually there's just something quite appealing about that. Mm. Uh, you know, there's something quite alluring about it. And you, and, and you want to be around people like that. Um, mm. I think you, you, people either go one or two ways, don't they? They either want to be around it or they want to make fun of it because yeah. it's the complete opposite of them. They're totally insecure, yeah. so you have to kind of make fun of it. Um, and so that was certainly my experience watching my kids go from CFS to sixth form um, and what happened with them in the sixth forms and um, just the fact that they did super well um, in the sixth form in terms of, you know, fitting it. No, fitting is the wrong mm. phrase, but connecting with people and making friends and, um, have an impact and I think you're I, I love this concept actually that you that you talk about and a, 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 this idea that actually you understood your worth mm. um, and that your worth is not based on academic achievement mm. um, now it's fair to say Jen or should I say Dr Jen uh, from an academic point of view you have achieved quite a lot right I have I have achieved quite a lot and um, but it's safe to say that when I was in Belvedere, I was not an A student. I was the mm. bottom of the pile in terms of academics. I'd come from being, you know, quite near the top in CFS to actually being, you know, not not amongst the cleverest at all. You know, so that that was a challenge in itself. But since then, I have I have achieved a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, just tell the good folks uh, what your doctorate is in. Um. So my doctorate is in biochemistry and molecular biology. <laughs> <laughs> I just, well, I, yeah, I just, it makes me laugh. And I remember, it makes I remember. a lot of people laugh. I'm not quite sure what that says. <laughs> lots no, of people no. do not expect me to have the title doctor and for it to be in something scientific. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's more to do with me, to be fair. I, I, when you say words like that, molecular biology, I'm just like, I have no idea what that means. I genuinely don't. It's like, well, I could have a stab, I suppose. Uh, and so, um, and actually, I remember really clearly one day, Jen, I tell people this story that when, because you came to work for us, when was it? Like four years ago, maybe? Yeah. Three, four years yeah. ago, something like that. Um, 
And you started working with us. And at the time we had a, a company which sold beauty products. Uh, and you came and you, I remember one day you, you, you had in your hand um, a, a bottle of something, I don't know, some kind of product that we were selling. And you were reading the ingredients of this product and you were pronouncing the words. Whereas I, I look at the ingredients and I go, I have no idea what, one, what that is, or two, even how to say it, right? I just, I just, it just, I can't figure that out in my head. And so it was when you were reading these sort of ingredients and you were able to pronounce them, I'm like, how are you doing that? And then that's when I discovered you had this PhD and you were in fact, Dr. Jen. And I was like, wow, that's quite impressive. Um, very impressive actually and so uh it's uh, it's it's awesome that you did that so you've 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 grown up in a christian school you've grown up in a christian house you've gone to belvedere you've got your a levels um you academically when you started belvedere you you weren't necessarily at the top of the pub but i, I assume you did okay in your a levels to get to the next sort of phase of life yeah i mean i'd applied for um i think really the I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm. You know, like I hadn't shone in any particular area. You know, some people are like from the start, they're like, I want to do medicine, I want to do law, I want to do this. I want I had no clue. And obviously, once you start sixth form, you're heading on that journey of UCAS forms. Yeah. Like you need to look around unis, you need to pick a degree, you need to apply, you need mm -hmm. to, you know. So I did all that. I went round open days. I still didn't have a clue. I quite like French quite liked English, quite like science. I didn't really know what to do. I ended up applying for French and law, mm. um, applied, got the places, um, got the grades for the place, had a place to study um, French and law in Manchester, got the grades on results day or the next, no, I think it might have been results day. The pack came through the post of all the stuff about the degree because I'd got my place and I just looked at it. I, sat, I was in the house by myself. I looked at it and I just thought, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Senseless. Why on earth did I think I would enjoy this? <laughs> no offence to anybody that's done law. It just wasn't, wasn't yeah. for me. Sure. And so I remember saying to my dad, what am I going to do? I can't do this degree. Um, and back then... My kids laugh at me when I say this, that clearing was in the newspaper. So you'll probably remember this. Yeah, I a do. Couple I of do days yeah. After A-level results, the newspaper had come out with all the degrees that had places and you'd sit with a pen or a highlighter and circle anything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you thought looked interesting and then you had to phone them. So my dad just said to me, get yourself on a good science degree. That'll be a good background, you know, a good basis for stuff. So that's what I did. I circled a bunch of degrees, rang round and found biochemistry in John Moores. That sounded Which, sounded fun, yeah. sounded interesting, um, but I absolutely loved it. It was the best thing for me. Mm. It really was. But I hadn't even considered biochemistry in sixth form. I didn't even really know what it was. I'd done mm. a unit of it in my biology A-level. But, um, yeah, absolutely loved it. And that's what led on to my PhD. Um, so did you go straight that. into doing the PhD after the degree? Yeah. So we had a friend in church who worked in the School of Tropical Medicine and I did my undergrad project with him, you know, for your dissertation in your final year. Um, he said, why don't you come and do a research project with me? Mm. And so I kind of got to know people then. And he said to me, there's a PhD becoming available um, in another department. I think you'd really enjoy it. So it just, it was in the snake venom research unit, but I am not an animal fan. 
And it did say on the job advert, the PhD advert, you know, you don't have to handle snakes. You don't have to touch snakes. You don't have to like them. And I was like, great, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, again, just another extraordinary fact. So you know a lot about snake venom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's an important topic to know a lot about. Uh, obviously. Well, it is, you know, because I always come in contact with venomous snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you get a lot of calls, don't you, from various people. Jen, uh, (laughs) I've just come into contact with. So you've got your PhD. At what point in this journey have you met Dave? So I met Dave in between. I met him when I was in lower six, so when I was about 16. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was a friend of my brother's. He went to college with my brother. Um, And it's quite funny because my brother... um, Dave must have seen me. He was always around at our house. Um, Dave must have seen me one day, and I think he was telling my brother's friends and his friends that he'd seen me and that, you know, he thought I was quite nice looking, that kind of thing. And Matthew was like, you stay away from my (laughs) (laughs) Well, that worked really well. They're like, yeah, that worked. (laughs) I mean it, you stay away from her. (laughs) And Dave obviously didn't pay a blind bit yeah. of attention. So, no. so how did um, how did that all come about? Did he just ask you out one day, or was it uh, a bit more no. complex? So Dave, um, Dave wasn't brought up in a Christian home, but he mm-hmm. came. Matthew invited him along to the youth in our church on the the pretext that he could meet girls, and they were nice girls, you know. <laughs> Always a good reason to go to church. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And there was lots of footy going on. Dave liked playing footy, so. Um, Dave came along to the youth and obviously, like I said, he spent a lot of time in our house, mm-hmm. as did quite a lot of our friends growing up. Um, so we kind of got to know each other, but he wasn't a Christian. And so I was not going to let him know that I liked him at all because I'd made a decision. I wasn't going to do anything about it because he wasn't a Christian. And I knew okay. I wanted a Christian mm-hmm. um, from, you know, as a boyfriend. I just it wasn't something I was going to entertain. I know not everybody's like that, but for me, that was just something I'd decided um and I just prayed about it I remember praying I remember one of my friends praying with me because she knew that actually I really liked him um and you know time went on Dave did become a Christian mm-hmm. um and then you know I started to let him know that I did like him <laughs> so we got together when um I was in upper six Okay, so yeah, so it's about a year, eighteen months from sort of meeting him to yeah, about a year after I met him, yeah, yeah, and he's he sort of became a Christian, and it's fair to say actually, um, just sort of fast forwarding twenty years, we obviously you're still married, still happily married, um, and Dave is still uh, quite an active member of the church, isn't he? He's still going on yeah. strong in his faith. So yeah, yeah. Um, so you meet when you're eighteen. How, when do you get married? We got married when I was 21 and Dave was 23. Okay. So married quite young. Um, And at this point, I'm assuming life is all sunshine and rainbows, right? Yeah. To be honest, it had been. I remember somebody who was a bit older than us in our church, one of our friends saying to me one day, um, you know, I think you and Dave are just, I think something has happened. And he was like, you and Dave are just one of those couples where everything just slots into place for and, you know, everything just is 
yeah, I think you're just going to be one of those couples where everything just works out for you in life. Mm. And it, it, was, it, it was just in a conversation. It was just an observation. And actually up to that point, you know, both of us had passed our exams. We'd both got places in university, jobs we'd applied for, we'd got, and um, we both passed our driving test first time. And it wasn't that, you know, we'd worked hard for those things, but we hadn't really faced challenges of that, mm. you know, up to that point. And I guess from the outside, yeah, it looked like, you know, we'd put an offering on a house that had been accepted, we'd got married, we'd moved in, we'd, but, you know, life was carrying on, mm. you know, quite easily, probably. Um, so, yeah, so everything had been quite straightforward up until that point. Um, yeah, so I was doing my PhD. Um, Dave was in the police at the time. Um, yeah, and life was just carrying on. Life and was... probably, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, life was all sunshine and rainbows, but it, yeah, it sort of yeah. it has this habit of, of not being like that for very long. <laughs> no, no, no. So I think the first the first major challenge we faced was um, we had we decided we were going to have kids. And again, that happened really easily. I know it doesn't for people. It mm. was like, right, should we have a baby? Oh, OK, there I'm pregnant. You know, it was like <laughs> it was okay. that wasn't, a, you know, there was no challenges. And then mm. I think um, I lost I had a miscarriage early on in that pregnancy. And that really floored us because it just mm. wasn't something we'd even expected or thought about and as you don't you know mm. um we were we were on a road trip around Canada when I had the miscarriage um and it was it was really tough um I think for me up to that point um I'd always achieved um I'd always passed things I'd always done things well I'd worked hard you know whereas this was one of those first key moments where I felt like my body had failed I felt like I'd failed mm. you know something I was you know, like designed to do, I couldn't do. Mm. And there was nothing I could do to fix it. And that was really hard to take. Um, and so um, <laughs> I ended up getting pregnant shortly after that again and miscarried again. Um, you know, lots of people say, you know, miscarriage is really common. I think the stats are something like one in four pregnancies yeah, end in miscarriage. It's really high, yeah. So actually with the first miscarriage, um, you know, I did think, oh, it's not going to happen again. You know, mm. it won't happen again. But then for it to happen for a second time, around about the same time um, as the first, was really tough, really tough. Um, because, you know, like lots of people early pregnancy, you don't tell people. You kind of keep you keep it quiet, don't you, till you've got to that point where things, you've had your scan or, you know, mm. you decide to tell people. So you're actually battling a lot of these things behind closed doors, um, just the two of you. Um, and I do remember having the second miscarriage. I was at home, so I went to the women's, and at the time um, the policy was you needed to have three miscarriages before they would investigate. And I do remember saying to the consultant, um, you mean you're going to make me go through this for a third time because it mm. will happen just to tick a box. And she was lovely, actually. And I do see that as God's blessing. She was really compassionate. And she, she, you know, she saw this day in, day out. I wasn't, you know, anything out of the ordinary. And she just said, I do think you'll have another miscarriage, but I think you've got a clotting problem. Take a low dose aspirin a day. Mm. I think that could work for you. If it doesn't, 
come and see us and we'll investigate but she did she was lovely she gave me a hug she was really mm. really nice um and so when I did get pregnant again I took aspirin and it worked I took it for each of my three pregnancies so I never ended up having to have investigations mm. um and I know that people listening might think well it's ended well for you you've got three kids now but actually I and I do appreciate I'm so thankful it doesn't end well for everybody you know we've you've had people on haven't you talking about recurring yeah. miscarriages yeah um but I still had to walk through that pain at that time when I had those mm. miscarriages. I didn't know I was going to go on to have three healthy kids. Mm. You know, um, so how really did you fun. how did you do? Because the first time you have a miscarriage, you're you're not even in, in Liverpool. You're in uh, the back streets of Canada, right? I was in Whistler um, in Canada snowboarding. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, so you're fa- are you with family then or is it just you and Dave? But Dave and I, we'd, we'd had a trip planned um, and we'd had a great time. It was towards the end of the trip. Mm-hmm. My mum and dad were in America on business, so I couldn't even get in touch with them because they were touring around on business. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was a, a hospital in Whistler. I was seen instantly. I, you know, I was cared for. It was, you know, it was really, it was really tough. Mm-hmm. Um but actually, I did receive the help I needed. I received the support I needed. I got home. You know, there was family and friends that knew about it that were close to us. You know, um, I talked to my supervisor um, in my PhD. They, you know, I had a bit of time off. Everybody around me was really compassionate and really yeah. kind. Um, yeah. So how long was it then between this first miscarriage and the birth of of your first child what was that time period so I had the first miscarriage in the March April time Mm -hmm. of 2004 and my first child was born in May 2005 so it wasn't long Mm. um yeah it wasn't long um but it felt like a long time yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, horrific to go through. I, but the, it seems then during that time you're getting pregnant really easily. Um, that's not an, an issue for you. But how are you? I mean, I, I have to be honest with you, Jen. I sit here. Obviously, I've never experienced this myself. Um, mm. uh, I, I've never personally gone through. It. How are you dealing with the day to day of being pregnant? Because if you've had two miscarriages already and you're you're now pregnant for the third time, you're like. Are you walking around on eggshells? Are you? How does that work for you? Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest. That was pretty horrendous. Um, being pregnant with my first, not knowing if I was going to miscarry, um, and people around me not knowing I was pregnant, and obviously, it you're dealing with a lot of that in inside yourself privately. Mm. Um, but those first, especially those 12, 13, first 12, 13 weeks were really really hard and mm. um, because every single twinge every single symptom everything you you're looking at oh no is this it oh no is this it when you've made mm. it to the end of a day you're like right I'm still pregnant what if I wake up tomorrow you know it's so easy to get carried away with the what ifs mm. um, and actually I really learned at that point to literally do each hour each day um, 
and a verse that really stood out to me, which has stood out to me loads in my life is um, be still and know that I am God. Because actually yeah. there's times in life when there's nothing else you can do other than just to take a moment and focus on God because your thoughts are just exploding. You're going to torture yourself with worry. Um, and actually God doesn't want that for us. You know, he wants, mm. you know, so actually there was times when I just had to be like, right, I just need to do the next hour and not think about it. Um, focus on something different. Um, and it was, I was regularly coming back to God and it's really hard because you, it's such a precious thing being pregnant, but you're trying to hold it lightly, mm. you're trying to protect yourself. Mm. Um, and then you've also got bigger questions if, well, what if, what if I'm not going to have kids? What if, you know, mm. you can't think beyond that. It's out of your control. Mm. And I don't think God wants our days filled with worry about what ifs. Um, but I think that, you know, I think it eased once I could feel kicks. Mm -hmm. I could feel the baby moving. So I was like, okay, this baby's okay. This baby's alive, you know. But I think even up until when I delivered, I think I was still protecting myself that something could go wrong with this. Mm. Something could go wrong. Um, and did that you... happen with your second? And were you of the same mindset with um, Jared and Phoebe? Were you were you thinking all through the pregnancy? Was it the same anxiety, the same worries, the same concerns you had to deal with, or was it a little bit easier? A little bit easier. It was a bit easier. Um, obviously I was still nervous up to that point because once you've had a healthy baby, they don't monitor you. So I did get an early scan with Adam. They scanned me early. There was a heartbeat because what they want to know is, is there a heartbeat? Because then if the heartbeat stops, something has caused that to stop. Mm -hmm. Or is it that a heartbeat didn't develop in the first place? You know, they like to know that. So I did have an early scan, but with Jared, I didn't have that um, because you've had a healthy baby so there's no yeah. reason why um and actually I did we did pay for an early scan so I was anxious we did pay mm. for an early scan just to give me that peace of mind and then the rest of the pregnancy I was okay with Phoebe I was fine I think I'd you know I'd relaxed mm. enough to think okay um so how did you deal with the loss of two babies then with the two miscarriages because there's I suppose there's you, you've got a miscarriage is an interesting thing in the sense you've there is grief and there is loss um, there that you have to deal with, but you, but you, you and you you keep going and you keep going and 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 it's worked out well for you. Um, Anna Kettle's story is a little bit different. The outcome has been a little bit different. Um, but how did you deal with that and, and process that? Um. It's funny, isn't it? Dave and I are very different characters. I like to talk things out a lot, whereas Dave more processes things. Mm. Um, so there were moments when he'd say to me, I can't I can't talk about this. You know, like, I can't mm. do this. Um, or there'd be moments where I'd, I would be able to share stuff. I had a few people around me that had been through miscarriages mm. who were there if I needed to text them, I needed to speak to them. Um, I think that's the biggest thing about miscarriage. Often if you've had one, if you let some people know, people suddenly appear around you who've had them and you didn't mm. even know mm. and can say, you know, I know how you're feeling. Mm. Um, you know, because obviously it's it's strange, isn't it? For a woman having a miscarriage is very different to a man. Yeah. A man doesn't physically have the miscarriage, but he still does lose, mm -hmm. you know, they still lost 
whereas I had the physical things to do. So I was thinking it was me and my body's failed, whereas Dave didn't look at me like that. It was mm. more, we've lost a child, mm. you know. Um, so I think it's, it, it, again, it's taking each day. It's, you know, um, having people around you, seeking help if you need it. Um, it was quite a short time frame for me, really. Some people go through this for years, don't they? Mm, mm. Um, and I did keep having to come back to God and handing things to him because it's all right saying I trust God, but then panicking every day. Yeah. But actually, you've got to, there's times when you've got to ask him to take the anxiety from you for mm. that day. Mm. Um, it's just too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, no, fair enough. Jeez. So, um, so you've you you have your three kids, right? You you've dealt with um, the loss of two babies. You've got two miscarriages. You you come through that, um, and you and Dave come through that. You've got three kids. Uh, does life then return back to being all sunshine and rainbows? Yeah, I would say it did for quite a while. It did. We got busy, and so you know what it's like when you've got three young kids. Um, raising them, having lots of fun with them. They're starting mm. school, you know, going on holidays, you know, like all that kind of building learning memories. Learning how to crochet. Yeah, learning how to crochet when they're finally asleep and, you know, introducing them to Everton. <laughs> yeah, all those yeah. all those key things you're supposed to do as a parent. <laughs> yeah, so it probably was run of the mill, you know, we had like little challenges like everybody has, but there was nothing major mm. um, in life. Yeah, it probably was. Um, and then I'd say the next challenge we had was when Phoebe was in reception. I think she'd not long started school. So was that maybe 2013? Yeah, I think about 2013. How old is Phoebe at this point? Just so people know what reception age four. is. Four. She's four years old. So when she was four, Dave had been having some um, back pain, like chronic mm. back pain on and off. And, you know, he'd like he'd been for physio and he, when he was in the police, he'd um, had an injury that he'd sustained through riot training. Um, and so we knew he knew that he had a, like an issue with his back. Mm. And so I think he thought it was to do with that and, you know, just kind of brushed it under the carpet. But this pain was quite persistent. And so he... Um, he went to the doctors over it, which wasn't like him. He wasn't somebody that went to the doctor. Um, and the doctors referred him on. I can't remember what what kind of depart, you know, what speciality they mm. referred him on to. But he got referred and ended up having um, an MRI scan. And so we went to get the results of the scan, thinking they were going to say, oh, it's something muscular. There's something to do mm. with, you know, injury that sort of thing and um, we haven't really we weren't worried we haven't thought much about it um and the consultant said to us and um, we've seen something on your scan on your adrenal gland on your kidney um and it's probably just a cyst it's probably just a fatty lump it might not be the cause of your pain but it's probably worth us just investigating and he kept saying it won't be anything serious the yeah. loads of people have them but obviously we need to do um a different kind of scan a CT scan mm -hmm. so we were like right okay you know and life was busy we had three young kids I don't remember us being really stressed at that point I remember us just thinking right okay so he's getting a scan um he went for the CT scan we went back to the um see the consultant and he said 
Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure what this is on your adrenal gland. Um, it's out of my, you know, speciality now. I need to refer you on to somebody else. It's probably nothing to worry about. It's probably just, you know, but I need somebody else to look at it. Mm. So we got referred. And again, at that point, we weren't, you know, we were a bit like, oh, well, I wonder what it is. And I wonder what they'll do, you know. But we weren't, we hadn't thought much of it. Um, so we got referred on to a different consultant in the Royalist time. And she said um, she ordered another CT scan from a slightly different angle or a slightly different type of scan. So we went back to see her and each time we were told, each appointment we went to, we were like, oh, it's probably nothing serious. It's probably just this. And then we'd go back and they'd say, actually, it's not that, but it could be this. You know, so it wasn't like we were getting hit with bad news each time. It was just, you know, mm. more information. So after a th another scan, we went back and the cons the consultant said, um, it could be one of two things. It could be uh, a tumour. Um, or it could be a different kind of tumor called a. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna love the pronunciation of this. A pheo um, sono pheochromocytoma. It could be one of these. <laughs> yeah. Which is non-cancerous, but is a different challenge. Mm. This is what she said. So it could be one of those two things. But she said, I don't really want to do a biopsy because that's quite invasive. And if it's something sinister and I disturb it doing a biopsy, it's going to tell me, you know. It's, it's just going to tell me what I know that probably we need to investigate, get this, this mm. tumour out. So she said, I, I want to do one other test. And I can't remember exactly what the test was, but I remember her phoning after the second, this test that she did. And she just said, it doesn't look good. It needs to come out straight away. We need to book you in for oh, surgery. Wow. And we were just like, this was in the space of a few months. And she was really serious. And she didn't strike me as somebody who was dramatic Mm. You know, she dealt with these sorts of things every day. And so he was booked in really quickly to have his adrenal gland removed um, totally because, you know, and they said it might be that you need mop up, you know, chemo or radio until we've taken it out. We've done biopsies. We're not entirely mm. sure. So we'd gone from like mild backache, not mild, probably moderate backache to all of a sudden facing one of two kinds of tumours, one that would mm. result in um, extra treatment, like chemo or radio, or the other option was that it was a certain kind of tumour that could potentially grow anywhere in his body. Mm. So this could be the first, and they could develop anywhere. So he'd have to be monitored regularly. Our mm. kids would have to be screened genetically because they could have inherited it. So they might mm. develop them. So neither option seemed great to me. No, no. Jeez, no. <clears throat> you know, our kids were really young um, and we were trying to do the day to day whilst mm. managing the, again, the what ifs, the, you know, thinking through the, the implications. So it was probably about over a, from about four months to from the first appointment he had to when he went in for surgery, having different scans in between and different things. So he had surgery and had um, his adrenal gland removed. Mm. So he calls himself a monoglander. So he always goes, <laughs> oh, that's because I'm a monoglander. I don't think it makes any difference, but anyway. <laughs> no, it's a fairly in joke, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he... Um, 
after the surgery took quite a while it's quite a long surgery and I remember waiting in the royal for him to come up from recovery um and the, the surgeon came up and she said I'm convinced it is a pheochromocytoma convinced she said I've taken these out before she said we'll do the test she said and then we'll get him booked in for you know like um, monitoring we'll have to sort out about getting your kids refed mm-hmm. so I was like <clears throat> okay so this isn't cancer but it's another type of challenge yeah you know and she said yeah she said there'll be no further treatment needed she said but obviously I can't concretely say that until the biopsy comes back mm-hmm. so um you know, recovering from major surgery in itself is a challenge. So they Especially when you've got off, young kids. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I think that kicked off a load of health anxieties for Dave because it mm. just came out the blue. Um, and all of a sudden, again, you know, c- circumstances beyond your control, that's what we were facing again. Yeah. There was nothing we could do to fix these things. We had to trust God. We had to trust other people. We had to just keep living each day. Mm. Um, again, putting our you know, the faith that we had, we had to live that out. Mm. Um, And so when we went back for the biopsy results, we were faced with, we were like bracing ourselves for a life of monitoring, which, you know, he was alive. Everything was, would have been fine, but it would have been challenging in itself. Or we were potentially facing, you know, chemo, radio, maybe extra surgery, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And actually, I mean, I laugh now, but at the time, it was really really hard but it ended up being it wasn't a tumor on his adrenal gland it ended up being from it ended up being lung tissue from when he was developing as a baby in the womb some lung tissue had not had not separated when his adrenal glands and his kidneys formed and the lung tissue had stayed on the top of the adrenal gland so it was totally harmless lung tissue probably wasn't the cause of the back pain we never, we never got to the, the, the root of it. The back pain did go. We don't know what that was. But it was totally harmless tissue. Um, so the pair of us were a bit like, what was all that? <laughs> that was horrendous for lung tissue. Wow. You know, a bit of a um, drama queen then. <laughs> yeah. But we were, you know, obviously so, so thankful. And I know, yeah, again, yeah. for others, that kind of story doesn't end that well. Mm, mm. For us, it did. You know, it was four or five really challenging months. But actually, at the end of it, the pair of us were just literally like... <sighs> and breathe. Don't want to yeah. go through that again. No. Um, no. It's quite... I mean, so you've got these sort of two situations, haven't you? You've got the miscarriage, you've got the cancer scare, where life is seemingly spiralling out of control. Yeah. And it's not going great. It's not going at all how you'd planned or predicted um and i when things spiral like that there's an overarching emotion of fear and anxiety isn't there because you you just you you just don't know what's going on how did you reconcile um this theology that you would have grown up with that god is good and that god is faithful and waking up every day having to deal with the the fear and the anxiety of of and not knowing of, of what's going on. Yeah, I think I think that, like you said, God is good, God is faithful, is something you have to repeat to yourself. This isn't the life that God planned for us, is it? When he created mm. the world, he didn't create it with sin in it. 
sin entered the world and chaos resulted. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, I wasn't somebody that thought, oh, God's letting this happen to, you know, like, because I've done something wrong or I've, I'm being punished or, you know, like, I wasn't, I wasn't into that kind of theology. You know, bad things do happen in life. But God is good through all of those and God is faithful. And that is something, even if that's just what you repeat to yourself, there will be blessings in each day that you can look for from God. I mean, when I look back over that time, we didn't have weights to see consultants. We got scans exactly when we needed them. Mm. We got the medical care we needed. We had people around us to help us and support us. We, you know, there were so many things that could have made that situation Mm. so much worse. Mm. And I do see them as blessings from God. Mm. And, even in the tough times, God is good. He mm. grieves with us when we grieve. He, mm. you know, like he's walking that with us. It's not that he's stood back thinking, right, well, this is going to teach them how to trust me. That's not God, is it? You know, that's not his character. Mm. And that's when you do have to um, start living the knowledge of the character of God, don't you? Mm. That you know mm. from growing up that God is good. God is faithful. He can comfort you. He's can be a refuge. You know, mm. his word is full of encouragement. He's instructed us as Christians and people how to care for each other in those times. And that's when you really have to start start living that out. And sometimes, like I've said, it can be hour to hour. It can be day to day. And you can fail at it as well. Mm. Mm. And God's still there. He still loves you, even mm. when you walk away from him, you know, um, He's there ready for you to come back to him, Mm. to to comfort you, to help you. Um, (coughs) But again, I think that situation showed us both that things happen out of our control. Yeah. We don't control our lives, that we can respond to things. We can make plans, but things will come up out the blue. And Mm. are you going to crumble or are you going to come to God and say, help me? Mm. I can't do this alone. Um, help me to to comfort my kids when they know their dad's had a major operation Mm. you know all those those kind of things um it that's when you have to start you know living as a christian don't you not just yeah it it goes from something that is just in your head an idea to something you actually have to prove out now and you have to live that life and i think you you I've been around a while, Jen, as you know, and you come a lot across a lot of self-help type stuff, both inside the church and outside the church. You know, yeah. will you rise to the challenge and all that sort of stuff? Like, I need to be the all-conquering hero and, you know, take back uh, all this sort of stuff. And I think actually sometimes the bravest thing to do for me, rising is actually going, I haven't got a clue. I don't know what I'm doing. God, you need to help me, please. Do yeah. you know what I mean? And, and actually... I'm going to trust this whole situation to you. It's not like I need to solve anything or fix anything because I can't. It's like actually rising here is going, no, God, you are good. You are faithful. And I'm going to see your, you know, the goodness of God in the land that I'm living in to quote the Psalms. And it's that kind of um, that dogged determination, that faith, that belief that is full of actually it's full of anxiety it's full of um the stress and the emotion of the whole situation it's real it's raw but i think that that to me is is much more than this sort of pretense rah rah do you know what i mean yeah. the 
the sort of uh, getting all hyped and excited from because some guys on the stage telling me, you know, you've got the power and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think it's super inspiring in a lot of ways, Jen. And I, and I think um, it's part of the reason why we do this podcast is to hear different people's stories and just go, goodness yeah. me. Um, the stuff that you guys will have gone through with small kids, um, you know, dealing with all of that and processing all of that. But I know your story. That's not the, that's not the end of it, right? So um, I know that there was also the, the passing of your father, which mm. impacted your life. Yeah, massively. So, yeah, so, um, do you know, there's certain times in your life that stand out, like, crystal clear, don't they, too? You mm. can remember everything about a day, everything. Other days are fuzzy, but there'll be certain times in your life where you mm. literally remember everything. And the day that my dad died is one of those. So it was December. Um, the kids were due to finish school the next day. Mm. Um, we were booked as a my mum, my dad, my brother and his family, me, Dave, and the kids were all booked to go to Dubai for New Year. So we had tickets to fly out on Boxing Day to go and spend New Year in Dubai together. Mm. Um, it was like a big celebration we'd been looking forward to. So it was a Tuesday, um, and the kids were due to finish school the next day. I'd had a coffee in town with a friend. Um, I was buying some bits for Dubai. I'd made, you know, I, I used to help run a Christian union in a local high school. Um, for girls in the city and we were having a Christmas party that afternoon I dashed home I'd made some treats for that <coughs> I took them we celebrated Christmas together because they were finishing school um, it was all really exciting I went to pick the kids up they went swimming we had loads of things planned Phoebe was going to be in a nativity the next day so in CFS when you're in year three that's when you get mm -hmm. your speaking part so she had a speaking <laughs> part yeah. She was going to be a wise man. Yeah. She was very excited. You know, it was all all the, all the excitement and buzz of Christmas. You know, yeah, yeah. we had yeah. like Christmas coming up. I had youngish kids. So Phoebe would have been, what would she have been, about seven. Um, Jared, nine. Adam, 11. You know, we had all that excitement on the horizon. Um, you know, the Christmas tree was up in the house, all that kind of stuff. And we were driving home from swimming. So I had the three kids in the car. It was dark and we were at the traffic lights about to come onto our estate. And my mum rang. So my phone was connected to the Bluetooth in the car. So mm -hmm. I just answered it. Never, you know, just was like, hi, you're right. And she, the sheer panic in her voice, she was just like, you need to come around. Your dad's having a heart attack. The ambulance is here. You need to come around. And I was like, oh, wow. OK, yeah, OK. Hung up literally flew home rang Dave said my dad's having a heart attack get the door open threw the kids out the car jumped in the car and drove round um I'm always an optimistic person in life I am optimistic so even at that point I was thinking my thoughts were racing I was thinking oh you know I hadn't necessarily thought heart attack meant death you know, like I was thinking, oh, he's, like, he's having a heart attack, but the ambulance is on the way. Okay. Mm. I wonder if he'll, yeah, he should be all right. Even if he goes to hospital, he'll be out for Christmas. You know, like, wonder if he'll be okay to fly. You know, like mm. that kind mm. of thinking. Got to my mum's um, and my mum and my brother were in pieces because they, um, they'd they had to do CPR on him. Wow. Um, and even at that point, I could hear, um, you know, the what do you call it? What's the machine? Oh, shot. the defib. I could hear the defib going. So 
So I was starting to think, oh, his, his heart's obviously stopping. You know, upstairs, I could hear mm. it. But I kept thinking, but then they'd get it back again. And I was thinking, oh, okay, okay. So, you know, he's, he's going to be okay. Um, and so what had happened was um, my dad um, used to play squash like three times a week. He was in a squash team. Um, he'd been out playing squash that afternoon. He hadn't felt well, so he'd cut the squash game short. He'd driven home. Um, it's a miracle he got home. I see that as God's blessing that he didn't have a heart attack on the road mm. and end up killing somebody, you know, and himself. Mm. So he got home. He said to my mum, I'm not feeling great. I think I'm going to go and get a bath. So, you know, my mum said, well, you go and get yourself sorted. I'll run the bath. So she ran the bath for him. He went upstairs. She came down and she heard a thud. And so she found him, started doing CPR, got my brother around. An ambulance came really quickly. You know, so it had all happened so quickly. And then that's when I'd arrived. Um, <clears throat> so we hadn't talked much about it other than, you know, like we knew it was serious kind of thing. Um, but even then, like I said, I was kind of thinking, you know, instantly we prayed, the three of us, mm. you know, and I, di I didn't think much about, oh, this is it, you know, this is it for him. I was more thinking, you know, I wonder how long he'll be out of action yeah. for when they do yeah. a bypass, will they put a stent in, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so they took him to, um, they took him to the Royal. Um, and again, I can remember um, us getting in the car and obviously seeing like, and hearing his ambulance sirens, at, you know, moving away from us and hearing them in the distance thinking that that's actually got my dad. And, you know, like you hear mm. ambulance sirens all mm. the time. Don't you? Mm. you don't necessarily mm. appreciate that there's loved ones of other people in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so we followed it, followed him down to the Royal and um, the doctors came in and said, you know, he's really poorly. He is really poorly. We've stabilized him. Um, now that he's stable, um, Broad Green will accept him. So Broad Green, for people who aren't in Liverpool, is like a heart and chest specialist mm. hospital, but they don't have an A&E. So they mm. will only accept stable patients. So again, I was like, oh, great. He's stable. OK, mm. he's stable. That's a good thing. You know, and they did say the next few hours are critical. So um, by that time, the pastor of our church had joined us um, and some of my close family had joined us as well because um, we are quite a close family. Like you mm. talked about earlier, you know, lots of my family have stayed in Liverpool, have grown mm. up in Liverpool, have got married, I've had kids, you know, so there was there was a few of us. So we went down to Broad Green and even on the journey from the Royal to Broad Green, I felt sick. I really did feel sick. Um, but I, I kept thinking, oh, you know, he's going to get treatment. This is going to be okay. It's going to be a long night, but, it, you know, this is going to be okay. And um, so we got to Broad Green. And then I have to say that time felt like an eternity when we were there. And, you know, and they put us in like a, a side room. And, you know, obviously the more time went on, the more I kept thinking of this this might not end well, you know, mm. this could be, this could be serious. Um, <clears throat> and then a consultant came in to talk to us and he said, you know, <clears throat> we've, we've, he explained different things he'd done, you know, they'd put a stent in, they'd done different things, but he did say, you know, the next couple of hours is really going to be critical. He's in intensive care. You know, I don't know if he's going to make it, you know, mm. um, 
so then he said when we've got him sorted we'll you know give you a call and we'll bring you up um and I think Dave at that point came I, th- I rang Dave and I was like listen I I, I think you need to come I, d- I don't know you know I don't know how this is going to go um and this was probably like midnight 11 half 11 at night um at this point um and then they did call us up to sit with him and they basically said we you know he's near the end there's not Mm. much more we can do um so i don't know if i've never sat around someone's deathbed before i don't know if you have um but it was it was really surreal it was like we were watching Mm. ourselves um but he was surrounded by all the people who love him the most um our pastor was reading psalms to him they kept saying to us talk to him your sense of hearing is the last thing that goes um we prayed you know we could we were telling him how much we loved him it was Mm. it was truly heartbreaking it really was it like the bottom had fallen out Mm. of my world totally um and obviously at that moment, I before then I'd been quite optimistic, and at that mm. moment I actually realised this was this was it. Um, and walking away from that hospital was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. Um, because I knew that my life had changed forever. You know, the dynamics of our family had changed. Mm. There was so much loss that you don't experience that every day, do you? So it's it's beyond what you can feel. So you mm. actually just go a bit numb because it's too much, isn't it? It's too painful, that sort of yeah. loss. <coughs> so I think we got home about four o'clock in the morning. We'd had friends um, who David phoned who'd come round in the middle of the night to sit with the kids. <coughs> and obviously my kids absolutely adored my dad, adored mm. him. He mm. adored them. And having to tell them, that he was, you know, they knew he was sick. They'd been sat in the car, hadn't they? Yeah. Um, and having to tell them that, you know, in their mind, Jesus hadn't answered our prayers. We'd prayed and asked mm. for God to make it better and that hadn't happened. You know, so having to tell them that he was gone was just, it was awful. Um, and you know what kids are like? In the same breath, Phoebe then went, so we can't, I'm not going to go to my nativity. Are you not going to come to my nativity? You know, she was yeah. seven years old yeah. and they, they hold like things mm. so so lightly don't they mm-hmm. and I was just like no Phoebe I really can't you know at that point it was um but yeah it was it was it was a really tough time probably complicated by the fact that it was right before Christmas yeah so everybody was building up to you know like family time to happy times and literally my heart had broken and mm. I just wanted time to stop. Um, you know, all through, all through from the moment my mum had phoned, I kept praying. We prayed out loud together. We prayed individually all through that night. I had no doubt that God could turn that situation around. Mm. You know, I knew he could, but he didn't. Mm. He didn't intervene at that point, you know, um, and I had to accept that. Um, it still didn't stop me doubting that that God could have mm-hmm. healed him. But actually, 
you know, my dad was in a far better place. And that is not what you want to hear at all when someone you've lost no. somebody. But no. for you to discover that yourself, mm. that's okay. You know, you just don't want someone to say to you, oh, he's in a far better place because actually your life has changed forever. Yeah, yeah. He may be, but I'm not right now uh, yeah. in, a, in a better place. Um, yeah. So you, you were quite close to your dad. Yeah, really close. Yeah. And actually, I'm discovering more and more how alike we were. <laughs> <laughs> Although not in football clubs, obviously. No, um, not in football clubs. So when was this, Jen? This was in 2016. So that's uh, six years ago, at the time of recording, almost six mm. years ago. So what have Christmas has been like the last six years? Is there now an association with Christmas that is not actually, this is not a time of celebration anymore? Yeah, you know, that first Christmas, it was really hard in a lot of ways. Obviously, we were grieving. We were planning a funeral at Christmas time. But I also had three young kids. Mm. And I didn't. I love Christmas. Absolutely love it. And, you know, you don't want you don't want that to go, mm. you know, because every day of the year we are missing him, mm. whether it's Christmas or not. So actually you end up finding, um, you end up going through the motions. So I had to finish Christmas shopping. I didn't have the kids' presents. I couldn't wake up on Christmas morning and be like, sorry, granddad's mm. died. I've got no gifts. You know, I know that sounds really harsh, but, mm. you know, in some ways it was helpful. It was utterly painful the time of year, but actually there were certain things that we had to do. Um so we had Christmas as normal. It wasn't a normal Christmas by any stretch. It was, you know, really, really tough. But we did all the Christmas things. You know, mm. we bought gifts, we gave gifts, we had Christmas dinner together, we did all those sorts of things. Um, and actually, I find December's really hard because mm. as people are starting to get excited about Christmas, inside I have that pain of that wasn't mm. like that for us mm. and Christmas is different now but like I said every day is different not just Christmas mm. um and actually as the years have gone on I'd say sometimes it hits you harder than others mm. um out the blue there'll be certain aspects of Christmas that are really painful um you know I'd bought him his Christmas present and I never got to give it you know so it was a bit like that first year I was a bit like oh, what do we do with this now you know mm. I've got I've got a Christmas present that I can't give him. Um, you know, so I do love Christmas still. <laughs> um, and you end up developing things that you do um, that bring you comfort. Mm. Um, and actually, there's times when it is really painful and you've just got to sink into that and you've just got to give into it, accept it, sit in it for a while. Mm. You know, um, God creates us with emotions, didn't he? We can't ignore mm. those emotions and it's okay to laugh, but it's mm. okay to just have a day where you're just really sad and you, you don't yeah. want to see people or you want to be, you know, you mm. want to cry. Um, but yeah, I, I am still a Christmas fan. <laughs> so yeah, this obviously has been six years, right? And this this is, I mean, it's, just, it's not a great event, is it? And you, you're looking back now, um, and you can see how you guys dealt with it, how you dealt with the emotion of it, the support of your friends, the support of your church, your pastor and the prayer and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
what if you could go back uh, and give yourself a bit of advice sort of six years ago what what would it have been what would you what would you say to yourself about you know what life is going to be like following from that point on um I think it's really important that people know that their grief journey is their grief journey mm. you will get and I wish I'd have I wish I'd have known that then because you will get well-meaning people um, telling you things of how you should behave or what Mm -hmm. you should do or what will help. And they are well-meaning, but actually everybody is different Mm -hmm. in the way they deal with life. Everybody's relationships with people are different and the way that, you know, your grief journey is different. So, if you find it really helpful to do a certain thing, do that. Mm. If you find it's not helpful, don't do it. Mm. You know, you don't have to answer to anybody as to how you're grieving. Mm. Um, you know, so I wish I'd have kind of, I wish I'd have owned that a bit more because I think mm. I felt like I was trying, at times I was trying to maybe grieve how people thought I should or do things people right. thought I should or go along to things because it should be time that I can do that or Mm. you know but actually I think we all need to learn to show each other grace that Mm. we're all very different and if it takes somebody a lot longer that doesn't mean they're any less of a person Mm -hmm. if somebody bounces back straight away that doesn't mean that they're like that behind closed doors yeah and actually I think it's having that understanding um I think it's taught me quite a lot so when when you lose somebody, people often react to you in one or two ways. They will either avoid you or they will say things that they mean well, but you just don't want to hear. Mm. And actually, it's okay to just text somebody to say, I don't know what to say. It's rubbish. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to just hug somebody and not have words to comfort them. Yeah. It's okay to just drop a meal off and walk away. You know, you don't have to say something earth-shattering to somebody. You're not going to say anything that's going to make their life any better no. at that point. There's no silver but, bullet, right? No, but actually just saying to somebody, I'm here and mm. it's rubbish and I'm so, so sorry for you. I'm so mm. sorry. Is It does really help. Mm. Um, it really helps. And so I, I remember at the, at, shortly after my dad died, I thought, oh, the times I've probably said the worst things to people you just don't know yeah until you've been through it it's it's, there's no textbook they don't teach you this at school right no Uh, here's how to help a friend dealing with grief it's not something that you know you you know um but it's actually really good that you've done some um you've done crowd talks on it about dealing with grief and how to help others because like you said we're not necessarily told and you're mm. not going to get it right either but you know it's better to show up for people and say nothing Mm mm-hmm then either back away or try and make sense of their pain, which. Yeah. yeah or just use platitudes to explain it away. You know, yeah. and Christians are brilliant at that because we've got oh, so yeah. many of them. Right. And we've heard them all on a Sunday morning sermon. Uh, so it's, it's easy to do, but um, I think the person grieving just wants to turn around and punch you in the face whenever you do it. So you, I think there's, there's times uh, where um, you just need to learn just to be quiet and just grieve with people. Just like the Holy Spirit grieves with people, just grieve with them. Yeah. Uh, be with them in their pain. Cry with those who are crying. Mourn with those who are mourning. Um, yeah. 
I'm always struck actually by stories in the New Testament, certainly in the Gospels, you know, like Jairus's daughter has passed away and there's a house full of people just mourning and wailing and grieving. And you're like, that's, that's not how England works when someone passes away, certainly not in the church. Um, so, well, that's... So Jen, here we are, right? Uh, six years later, you've gone through all of these things in life and I'm, I'm aware of time here. I don't even know how long we've been talking to be fair. Um, I, I feel like it's gonna be a long podcast. <laughs> long, but yeah, so people have listened this far, well done. Um, what's the one thing uh, then you've learned out of all of this? What's your message, the key thing, the key takeaway? Um, maybe that you would pass on beyond what you've said already, I, I suppose, in the, in the closing minutes of the, of the podcast here? Um, I think I would say life can be great, can't it? My life has had lots of great moments. It really has. So many blessings, so many great times, but it can also be messy. It can also mm. be hard. It can, you know, bring you to your knees. It can, you know, life can change in an instant, can't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even more now that my dad's died, I am more confident that the best is yet to come. For the Christian, mm. this life is not all we have. Mm. Um, my dad was very good at holding this life lightly, living it seriously, but holding it lightly because he knew that heaven was where he was headed and the mm. best was yet to come. Um, so I think that would be my that would be my takeaway that, Yes, it's good to work hard in this life. It's good to, you know, um, work hard at your relationships to Mm. try and, you know, deepen your faith in God, to learn more about, you know, what the Bible says, you know, to it's good to do all those things. But this is not ultimately for the Christian where we're headed. Mm. So um, my dad heard a story um, about three or four years before he died. I don't know who told him this about a woman in America who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. So she was given three months to live. So she went to um, meet with her pastor to get all her affairs in order, to pick the songs for her funeral, to plan it out, to talk about the different you know, aspects of when she died. And she said to him, I have a request and it might seem like a strange one, but I really want you to do this for me. Um, and I think in America, they tend to have coffins open. We don't tend to have that in mm, the UK. Yeah. Um, and she wanted to have a fork in her hand when she was put in her coffin and she gave him the fork that she wanted to go in her hand and he was a bit like you know what do you want a fork in your hand for this is a bit strange and she said um I want people to know that the best is yet to come for me Mm. that I'm not sad about dying the best is yet to come because she said all through like her life as a Christian in church she'd go to like you know bring and share type meals in church and there's not not always enough cutlery for like the main and the dessert is there Mm -hmm. so she'd be told keep holding your fork after your main and she knew that some sort of like pudding or cake Mm. something really good was on its way Mm. and this just became a familiar thing to her in her church circles so she said I want all of my family and friends to know that the best is yet to come for me. So whilst I might not be here, I'm in the best place ever because I'm with Mm. Jesus. So she was buried with this fork. So my dad said to us when he heard this story, like three or four years before he died, I want a fork in my coffin in my hand. (laughs) And we laughed about it. But he was like, I want, and I want you to tell people 
that I know the best is yet to come for mm-hmm. me, that I'm in heaven. So when he died, um, when we went to the funeral directors, they were like, you know, we need, obviously need clothes. Um, you know, is there anything you want to go in the coffin with him? So um, <laughs> we gave an outfit for my dad to wear, like his favourite everyday outfit. Mm. And we handed over a fork. And they're a bit like, Brilliant. what's this about? So I was, you know, we said to them, you know, our dad was a man of faith. He loved God. He believed that after he died, he was, he- you know, he was mm. going to be in heaven. And he wanted people to know that the best was yet to come for him. Mm. So we want him to have his fork in his hand. Um, and actually, my brother and I did the eulogy at my dad's funeral. My dad's funeral was huge. It was packed. Mm. I mean, like six, seven hundred people. Oh, wow. Um, and so we, in the eulogy, we spoke about the fact that he was wearing his favourite clothes and he had a fork in his hand and that he wanted everyone to know that for him, the best was yet to come. Mm. And he wanted them to think about their life like where mm. are they headed? Do they know God? Do they know? Do they not? Because actually, this life isn't all there is. Mm-hmm. Um, for the for the Christian, you know, we live in the the certain hope that when we die, the best is yet to come for us. Um, and actually, that's really good for us to remember when we're going through tough times mm. that this isn't the life that God intended for us. He's got the best for us. Yeah. When Jesus comes again, so that would be my one message. Wow. And that's actually, um, I mean, that's, that's brilliant. I, I love the story of the fork, you know, I'm waiting for my pudding, for my dessert. And I can see your dad walking through the, 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 the gates of heaven with his fork going, right, where is this heavenly banquet? I want my pudding now. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's phenomenal uh, and such a great message. The best is yet to come. And you're right with Christianity. There is this eternal hope, isn't there, that the best is in fact yet to come and yeah. i think that's a wonderful legacy of your dad actually um and just a chance conversation that he heard and it's, it's really interesting how he heard a story and that impacted him which has impacted you which then was told to another 600 people and it's yeah. part of the reason and why actually, this pod go on as a result that we know of a few people that gave their lives to christ or rededicated mm. their lives to christ because they'd sat through his funeral service and being impacted being impacted by you know mm. By his witness um as well you yeah know, so yeah it's a great legacy isn't it and i i think that's very admirable um and you know i i, I pray i have a, a legacy you know when mm. i when i do go on to eat my dessert and meet your dad mm. and I, I i i want that kind of legacy and i think it's brilliant and it's why we share these stories because you just don't know who's going to hear what and be impacted no. jen listen um thank you so much for being with us on crowd stories i feel like we could carry on talking for a long time but it um it's been wonderful uh to hear and thank you for being so uh, honest and and vulnerable with your story and sharing what you shared um and telling us about you know the miscarriages about the cancer scare and about um about your dad and i i sit here and i think wow life isn't all sunshine and rainbows is it and and we can trust god in the midst of it all um, in the midst of the pain and we can sit in the pain and we we don't have to pretend um, but ultimately God's still there and the best yeah. is in fact yet to come. Jen thank you uh, really appreciate it.
Thanks. <laughs> so uh, there you have it. Uh, thanks, Jim, for joining me today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast from, as we've got more great stories uh, about faith and courage from everyday people lined up, and I don't want you to miss any of them. Uh, you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Also, make sure you come join us on a Crowd Church live stream. Come say hi in the comments. You can find out more information about that uh, on Crowd Church. Yes, and if no one's told you today, the screen has just told me what the next message is. Uh, in case no one's told you yet today, you are awesome. Just like Jen, just like Jen's dad and the story, uh, you are awesome. It's just a burden we have to bear. It's the way God's made us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So it's just it's just life isn't it really uh, what's the story is produced by crowd church you can find our entire archive of episodes on your favorite podcast app the team that makes this show possible is Sadaf Bainon, George McQuaig, Estella Robin and Tim Johnson. Our theme song is written by Josh Edmondson. And if you'd like to read the transcript and notes from today's uh, conversation with Jen, they will be available on our website, www.crowd.church, where, coincidentally, you can also sign up for our newsletter. So I think that's it from me and I think that's it from Jen. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>